Remember, the book of Micah is a series of three sermons. They start in chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 6, verse 1. Each of these sermons follows a similar pattern. It starts with a condemnation of the nation's sin, and it ends with an affirmation of God's love. Sort of like what happened one night at the Adams family a number of years ago, I had to spank my son Nick. I know it comes as a shock to those of you who know him, but the boy had just been defiant. He had pushed the limits. He had just been a rebut. His mom was coming out in him. What can I say? As I pulled off my belt to give this little guy his spanking, he looks up at me with those big old eyes, and he says, Dad, after you spank me, will you give me a great big hug? That sounds like Micah's sermon. In chapter 3, God's people get spanked, but in chapter 4, they get a great big hug. Micah looks to the distant future, and he foresees an age when the Lord will reign from the hills of Jerusalem. Chapter 4 begins, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. One day Jerusalem and the Temple Mount will be the centerpiece of the world's attention. From the holy city, from the rebuilt temple, Messiah will reign over all. On our tours to Israel, I think the most awesome, the most majestic moment is when we stand on the Temple Mount and imagine what will be. Much of the tour of Israel is preoccupied with the past, with history. But on the Temple Mount, your imagination takes you into the future. To actually stand in the very spot where Jesus will one day rule the universe. It's a spine-tingling experience. It's really hard to describe. This phrase here, mountain of the Lord's house, on top of the mountains, these may be descriptions of the city's future topography. Zechariah 14 describes how the Mount of Olives will split in two when Messiah comes. Perhaps he'll build a temple on the mountaintops. And notice Micah tells us when all this happens. In the latter days. In scripture, this term is synonymous with the period when the current age ends and God ushers in his physical kingdom. This is what the Bible refers to as the latter days. It begins with a rapture and it ends with the thousand year rule of Christ. During that time, Jerusalem will be a hot vacation destination. Micah tells us, people shall flow to it. And then he writes in verse 2, Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. For he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Zechariah 14, verse 16, echoes this truth. There, Zechariah says, It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the Lord, the Lord of hosts, and specifically to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Apparently, in the kingdom age, the busiest travel season will be late September, early October. 
People will come from every corner of the globe to celebrate with the Jews in Jerusalem the fall feast of tabernacles. And they'll hear the Messiah teach from God's Word. What a joy that'll be. It'll be like back on the mountain when we heard Jesus teach the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Everywhere in Jerusalem, we'll line up, we'll sit down in the corridors or in the hallways or in the porticos of the temple, and we'll listen again to Messiah teach us of God's ways and of God's will. What a time that'll be. I'll bet flights to Israel will be overbooked. And in addition, verse 3, he shall judge between many peoples and rebuke strong nations afar off. You know, Psalm 2 tells us that in that day, Messiah will rule the nations. The world court, the United Nations Security Council will be replaced by the court of Christ. All people, even strong nations, will bow before him. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. When Jesus reigns, peace will finally come to this troubled planet. Imagine the day when nations stop developing weapon systems and stockpiling ammunition and begin investing in feeding people and in the welfare of society. Imagine that day. It's interesting, the last half of verse 3 appears today on a carved stone wall that sits across from the United Nations headquarters in New York City. Ironically, the engraving was a gift from the godless, atheistic, former Soviet Union. Knowing its origins explains why the inscription is missing the first half of the verse here. The inscription reads, They shall beat their swords into plowshares, but it, it, it leaves out what enables us to do that. He shall judge between many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. You see, there'll be no possibility of peace, certainly no lasting peace, until the Prince of Peace is on the throne and the world bows to his authority. And then verse 4 tells us, But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. What a beautiful imagery. Everyone will centered under his vine, sit under a shade tree. In other words, when Jesus reigns, there'll be no need to lock the doors of your house at night. There'll be peace. We'll carry out our daily lives without any fear. For all people walk each in the name of his God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Micah is comparing the way things were in his day to the way things will be in the latter days. And in the end, there'll be no God but the one true God who will give us peace and enable us to live in His name forever and ever. And then verse 6, In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast, and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. In the latter days, God will be the God of the underdog. He'll take in the lame and the outcast. Micah's probably referring to the Jews here. And for 2,000 years now, Jewish people have been the outcast. 
They have been the lame. They have been the afflicted. But in the latter days, they'll be regathered to their land and they'll be made a strong nation. He says, And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, a sheepfold would often have a tower along the wall, an elevated perch from which danger could be spotted. Here, the tower of the flock is probably a reference to the Messiah. In other words, the Lord will overlook, He'll look out for His flock. Reminds me of Proverbs chapter 18, verse 10, where it says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Jesus is our refuge in all times. He is the tower of the flock, as Micah puts it. The last half of chapter 4 compresses thousands of years of history. In fact, Micah ties prophecy to history. The Jews are compared to a woman in labor. Their history is compared to, to a woman in labor, and the pain gets more and more intense as she progresses. Then verse 9 cries out, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. And here is the source of her great pain. She has no king. It's interesting. Since 586 B.C., the Jews have had no king, no monarch, no ruler. Today, Israel has a parliamentarian government, not a monarchy. And yet the Jews long for a king, for the son of David. Like David, they hope for a benevolent ruler to lead them. He says, be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered, there the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now remember, Micah is writing in the late 8th century B.C., in the days of the Assyrian dynasty. And his observation here is a fascinating one. It's a prophetic one. Assyria never conquered Jerusalem. You remember God sent the warrior angel to deliver King Hezekiah and the Jews. God gave to Judah a 120-year reprieve, hoping they would turn from their evil ways. But they didn't. And in 586 B.C., God used the Babylonians to destroy the city of Jerusalem and to take the Jews captive. And here, Micah mentions their future oppressor by name. The Babylonians. He says, Babylon. He uses their name some 60 years before they even begin to show signs of their potential prominence. It really is a prophetic word here from the mouth of Micah. And then verse 11, Now also many nations have gathered against you, who say, Let her be defiled, and let her eye look upon Zion. And throughout the last 2,000 years of history, many nations have come against the Jews. In fact, in the last days, a coalition, coalition of nations will attack Israel. He says, But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand His counsel. For He will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. 
I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. In other words, the Lord will use Israel as his bait. The nations will think they are attacking the Jews, but God is in reality leading them to his threshing floor. A threshing floor is where ancient farmers would beat the stalks and separate the grain from the chaff. And God will use Israel in the last days to lure the nations to his threshing floor where he will trample the nations to pieces. And then in verse 10, even while in Babylon the Jews were promised, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. In other words, in the end, God will fulfill his promises. And then chapter 5. Now gather yourselves in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. And this, in a sense, is Jewish history in a nutshell. God has laid siege against his own people because of their sin. They've been struck. And it's forced them to gather into troops. But in the end, God will come to their defense. And this is where the prophecy of Micah turns amazing. For the prophet now is pondering Israel's plight over generations, her ups and her downs throughout her history. You know, Hebrew history is like a yo-yo. At times, the yo-yo hesitates and just spins at the bottom. Israel is down and seems to be remaining down. But then they pop back up. Then they're back down. Then they pop up. And Micah is thinking, what is it going to take to keep them up forever? His mind now focuses on an ultimate ruler. In chapter 5, verse 2, Micah predicts, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now remember, the prophet Micah lived 730 years before the birth of Jesus. Yet here, he foresees the Savior, and he predicts the exact place of Messiah's birth. You remember in Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, when the wise men from the east arrive in Jerusalem, they ask the location of Messiah's birth. The priests search, they scour the scriptures, And they find the verse. You remember what it was? We just read it. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though little, from you will come forth the one. Here is definitive proof of Jesus' messianic claims. That seven centuries in advance, God pinpointed the exact coordinates of the Messiah's birthplace. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. This is equivalent jargon to what we would describe Atlanta, Georgia. Bethlehem is the city. Ephrathah is the larger region or district. And Micah is amazed that such a small, insignificant place would be chosen by God to host Messiah's birth. This is why at Christmas we sing the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. For as far as cities go, Bethlehem was little among thousands, as Micah puts it. Far from the seats of worldly power, God chose a tiny little village, humble beginnings, for the child who Micah calls the one 
to be ruler in Israel. And yet the location of Jesus' birth is not really the most impressive part of Micah's prophecy. What really boggles the brain is that his birth was not his beginning. Micah says of Jesus, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. The Hebrew term translated everlasting, it means from eternity onward. It it speaks of an immeasurable duration. As the Toy Story hero Buzz Lightyear would say, to infinity and beyond. Go back in time as far as you can imagine. If you're older, try to go back 50 years. Where were you? What were you doing? Try to go back 500 years. Try to go back 5,000 years. 50,000 years. 500,000. 5 million years. 5 quintillion trillion years. Guess what? There you'll find Jesus. Go back as far as you can imagine, and there you'll find Jesus. Someone translated the term everlasting, beyond the vanishing point. When time fades into eternity, there you find Jesus. And the implications are provocative. This means that the eternal God and the baby of Bethlehem were one and the same. The ancient of days became a child of time. The infinite became an infant. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He has no beginning and he'll have no end. Jesus is God. And then verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up. Now, God is speaking of his people Judah. He's going to give them up. God is going to turn them over to their rebellion. Until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And this one shall be peace. This one is the ruler who was predicted to be born in Bethlehem. This one is the Messiah, the baby born in Bethlehem, the ruler who is to come. Jesus is going to stand, and he's going to feed God's people. He's going to be great in all the earth, and he is going to bring peace. Then we're told, when the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. Now, I believe in this passage, Micah is jumping in time from Jesus' birth to his second coming in just a few verses. It's interesting, he's talking about this one, this ruler who's going to bring peace. Well, Jesus didn't bring peace in his first visit. These prophecies obviously span from his first visit to his second coming. And if this is so... The Assyrian, we're told here, who comes into the land may be another name for the Antichrist. Many scholars interpret it as such. The future Antichrist will be as ruthless as the Assyrians of old. He'll be Israel's arch enemy and he'll attack them in in their ancient home. But when the Assyrian comes, Jesus will step in 
And he'll defend his flock with seven shepherds and eight princely men. God will raise up leaders with him. Now remember the challenge in unraveling Old Testament prophecy. Often events occur thousands of years apart that appear in the very same text. And here we have a classic example. Christ is born and he goes to battle in the same passage. Two events are spoken of back to back that actually happened thousands of years apart. And then verse 6 tells us, They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass that tarry for no man nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep who if he passes through both treads down and tears in pieces and none can deliver. Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. In other words, when Jesus returns, his people, that is Israel, will be among the nations like a lion among sheep. Jesus will make them strong. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no soothsayers. He's speaking of those nations who oppose Israel in these last days. Your carved images I will also cut off, and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst. Thus I will destroy your cities, and I will execute vengeance and anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. Chapter 6 begins Micah's final sermon. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against His people, and He will contend with Israel. Suddenly, Micah turns the world into a courtroom. God is the prosecutor. Israel is the defendant. But the jury is very unusual. It's made up of the mountains and the hills. Recently, I read of a San Francisco defense attorney who tried to call a parrot to the witness stand in hopes of getting the pet to name the man who killed its owner. In Pittsburgh, I heard of a dog, a police dog, that was placed in the witness stand to prove that it was the dog, not the accuser, that was the aggressor. Well, here in this trial, we don't find animals, but God does call on other aspects of nature to testify. He calls on the mountains and the hills to render a verdict. Why? Because poetically speaking, they were the only ones who witnessed God's mercy and God's faithfulness to Israel. You've heard the expression, old as the hills. The hills have been around a long time. They've watched God work. They've watched His faithfulness. They've seen His mercy toward His people. And they are in perfect position to cast verdict upon Israel's sin. 
Verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. God is asking his people, how have I laid you down? If I fail to love you, say so. Voice your complaint now. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled? And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him? From Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. God recounts their exodus from Egypt. Their journey through the wilderness, even the incident with Balaam. And God was always faithful. Faithful, faithful, faithful. That was his record. He even turned Balaam's curses into blessings. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see, throughout their history, the Jews had valued sacrifice as their preferred response to God's mercy. But they had misunderstood. Sacrifice was important, but it was a sign of something greater, which was obedience. You remember what God said to Samuel? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. You know, often it's easier to give to God what I want to give Him rather than to give Him what He wants done. Sacrifice is often a way of just buying God off instead of me surrendering my will to His. This is why sacrifice for sacrifice's sake is of little value. I'm leery of people who take pride in their great sacrifices. In reality, what God wants from us is simple obedience. Here's the question. How can we please God? He says a thousand sacrifices? No. Ten thousand rivers of oil? No. Verse 8 answers the question. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. If you want to know how to please the Lord, here's it. This is it. This is so simple. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Some of you are worried that you might not get the right gifts for the people on your Christmas shopping list this year. The wife and children can be pretty picky at times. But not so with God. Not so with God. He's not hard to please. Pleasing God is surprisingly simple. He makes just three requests that you do justly and that you love mercy and that you walk humbly. Do justly. Hey, just do the right thing every time. Never be satisfied with the excuse, that's just the way it is. No, treat people fairly. Have integrity. Here's a saying to live by. You never go wrong by doing what's right. Do justly. And love mercy. Don't wait until people deserve to be loved 
to give love. Did you hear that? Don't wait for people to deserve to be loved for you to give love. No, some people withhold their love before it's earned. And they never end up loving. We need to take the initiative. We need to be gracious. When it comes to spreading love, we need to take the initiative. Be merciful. And then walk humbly. Don't make everything about you. How petty have you become? The other night I was watching the news when they cut in for one of the president-elect's speeches. The commentator said, Tonight, Donald Trump is going to talk about what he always talks about. Donald Trump. Is that what you want folks to say about you? That you're going to talk about what you always, yourself? I hope not. We need to walk humbly. Hey, how is it that we please God? Well, we do the right thing. We love with no strings attached. And we never think we're all that. We do justly. We love mercy, and we walk humbly with our God. And then verse 9 tells us, The Lord's voice cries to the city, Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod. Who has appointed it? Now most of us live in the suburbs. But don't forget the needs of the cities, the inner cities, for there are many needs there. Here we're told the Lord's voice cries to the city. Remember, Micah was from the country. He was a country boy. But God used him to speak to the cities. God calls for wisdom. And there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked. Are there yet treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? And the short measure that is an abomination. This is what goes on in the cities. Business, commerce. But often it's wicked. Often people are getting cheated and scammed. Here he talks about the short measure. This was a dishonest business practice. You know, you paid for three feet, but you only got two. Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? Here's another way to cheat people. The scales are rigged so that when you buy 12 ounces, you only get eight. For her rich men are full of violence. Her inhabitants have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. He's saying honesty is needed in these commercial transactions. This is what needs to come to the city, honesty in their business practices. Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. Again, Micah is telling the crooked businessmen that they'll never enjoy the spoils of their deception. What they've cheated people out of, they'll never be able to enjoy. One Bible commentator renders verse 14. It says, you may carry some away, but shall not save them. He renders verse 14, you shall eat, but get dysentery. In other words, if you purchase food with money gained by cheating... That food will never stick to your ribs. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread the olives but not anoint yourselves with oil and make sweet wine but not drink wine. The man who sows what he stole from others will never reap a harvest. For the statues of Omri are kept. All the works of Ahab's house are done. Omri, Omri and Ahab were evil kings from Samaria. 
who ruled over the northern tribes. And their constituencies followed in their wicked ways. He says, and you walk in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore, you shall bear the reproach of my people. Now, in chapter 7, Micah is grieved. He looks around and he assumes that he is the only righteous man left in Israel. He says, woe is me. For I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. Micah's unsatisfied. Micah's like the fellow who goes out to pick grapes in the summer. He's sure to come up empty because fall is the harvest time, not the summer. He says, the faithful man has perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among men. They all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother with a net. Ever felt like you were the only righteous person left? I mean, you were the only person in your neighborhood who loved God and wanted to do what was right. You're the only person at your office that really loves God and wants to do what's right. The Greek philosopher Diogenes, he took a lantern And each night he searched the countryside for one honest man, but to no avail. The Lord told Jeremiah in chapter 5 verse 1, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places if you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks truth. It was Ezekiel who said, I sought for a man among them would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it but I found no one you ever looked around and wondered where the other righteous people might be it does seem that good people are always in short supply but this is why it doesn't take many people for God to do a work God is skilled at using just a few God replenished the earth with just eight people from Noah's family Gideon won a battle with a skeleton crew. The Philistines were defeated by one boy's courage. Jesus changed the world with just a dozen disciples. Never forget, just one plus God equals a majority. Verse 3 tells us, Mike is continuing to describe the evil around him. He says that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince asks for gifts, the judge seeks a bribe, and the great man utters his evil desire, so they scheme together. It's not enough just to sin with one hand. These guys were sinning with both hands. These were two-handed sinners. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. Trust in any human being and you'll eventually get stuck. It's like a burr in your saddle. Trust in another human being and they'll eventually let you down. He says, the day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. I mean, don't trust anybody. Don't trust in a friend. Don't even tell your secrets to your spouse. They're liable to get betrayed. 
In other words, this was the moral climate in the days of Micah. He says, For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. It could be that Micah's own family had turned against him. It's sad when there's no one that you can trust, not even your own family. I've heard it said, friends are like shadows. When the sun shines, they're right there. But when clouds form overhead, they disappear. It's like the man who was boasting about how many friends he had. He said, I have friends I haven't even used yet. Nothing cuts deeper, nothing hurts worse than to be used by a friend. But it wasn't that Micah had nowhere to turn, no one to trust. For he says, Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Here's good advice. When friends forsake you, when family forsakes you, even when your spouse forsakes you, you can run to God. You can trust in Him. Proverbs 18, verse 24, I love this verse. It says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And his name is Jesus. Well, verse 8 tells us, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Even when Micah himself sins, even when he falls, he knows he can trust his God not to forsake him. He doesn't allow himself to get buried under a mound of condemnation. He recalls that his God is a God of second chances. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. Micah knows that he has an intercessor. An attorney, a public defender who's been assigned to him to plead his case before God. This is what Paul says of Jesus in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, when he calls him the one mediator between God and man. Micah is confident that Jesus can deal with his sin and that the indignation that it's caused can be negotiated and a pardon can be issued. He never gets down for too long. Because he knows he has someone interceding for him who can plead his case and gain for him a pardon. It says in verse 10, Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. Those who mocked Micah and doubted his God, they will be judged. In the day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide. Now remember the form of Micah's sermons. They begin with a condemnation of our sin, but they end with an affirmation of God's love. They get their spanking, but then they get their big hug. And one day, God is going to pour out His love on Jerusalem. He'll issue a decree to rebuild her broken walls. A future urban renewal will come to the city of Jerusalem. He says, In that day they shall come to you from Assyria 
and the fortified cities, from the fortress to the river, from the sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. Jews from all over the world will return to Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. And this regathering of Jews has already begun. It's occurring even as we speak. And then in verse 13, Yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. It was because of the people's sin that the land has been desolate now for nearly 2,000 years. The soil was stripped of its nutrients. The forest was denuded. Yet today God is restoring Israel to the garden it once was. He says, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your heritage, who dwell solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old. God is returning to the land of Israel, to its former fruitfulness. He's returning the land to its prosperity. He mentions especially the, the lands in the northern part of Israel, the mountain pastures of Bashan and Gilead. Micah is here uttering messianic prophecies. Messiah will be a shepherd to a future Israel. Remember David cried in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. Here Messiah shepherds his sheep with his rod, we're told. It's no surprise in John chapter 10, Jesus was called the good shepherd. He'll once again shepherd Israel. He says in verse 15, As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders. Now imagine what it would have been like to be part of the exodus. At the head of the camp, you would look up and you'd see a cloud by day. You'd see a fire, fiery pillar at night. Every morning, you'd run out of your tent and you'd collect all the miracle manna from off the ground that you were going to eat that day. When you got thirsty, you actually saw water gush out of a rock. For some reason, your shoes never wore out. Really amazing. Think of all that you would have witnessed firsthand had you been part of the Exodus. But Micah is here telling Israel that in the last days, their eyes will see the same sort of wonders and the same sort of miracles that God will again intervene supernaturally for His people. He says, The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth, their ears shall be deaf. What a day that'll be when man shuts up. What a day that'll be. You know, today is the day of man. That's what we call it. Why? Because man is getting his way. Man is having his say. But the Bible tells us that soon God will reveal the day of the Lord. That will be a time in history when God shuts the mouths of mortal men. When God will have his say. When God will get his way. In that day, they shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. You ever heard the expression, bite the dust? Here, we're told that men will bite the dust. They'll slither about like snakes. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. Now, remember, Micah's name is also the theme of his prophecy. The word Micah means, who is like Yahweh? His goal in this prophecy is to prove that God has no equal, that no one is like Him. He's already noted God's sovereignty, 
God's justice, God's righteousness, God's judgment. But there is one characteristic that sets God apart. God does have a signature trait. And this is what Micah wants us most to remember about God. In fact, here is what sets God apart from all others. It's His willingness to forgive. This is His signature trait. And this is why He tells us in verse 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and I will subdue and will subdue our iniquities. Isn't this beautiful? They got their spanking. Now they're going to get a big hug from God. I love verse 18. Here's some amazing phrases. Passing over the transgression. Oh, your parents are sure to bring up your former mistakes. Your spouse won't let you forget them. But realize, God passes over your sins. He passes over the transgression. What's under His blood is out of His mind. Isn't that amazing? And then we're told, He does not retain His anger forever. Oh yes, God gets angry at sin. He sees the harm it does to both us and others. But His heart is too big to harbor a grudge. God is quick to bury the hatchet. Show the slightest little inkling of repentance and God is quick to forgive. And he delights in mercy. Extending mercy is not God's reluctant duty. It's not just an obligation. It's God's delight. Showing mercy is the part of being God that he likes the most. He dispenses his wrath with an eyedropper, but he pours out his mercy with a 50-gallon drum. As Ephesians 2 verse 4 tells us, God is rich in mercy. And then verse 19, an amazing verse. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And if you've come in here feeling a little guilty tonight, feeling like you've blown it, feeling like you're still stained, there's still a guilt that you bear, I want you to hear this verse. God will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Now notice first, not just some sins, but all our sins. Our civilized sins and our barbaric sins. Our accidental sins and our intentional sins. Our brazen sins and our bashful sins. Our past sins and our future sins. Come to Jesus and He will cast all your sins into the depths of the sea. Notice the Hebrew word translated here, all. It literally means all. All means all. God hurls all our sin into the deepest part of the ocean. That's where no human can explore. Since it's so deep, light doesn't reach there. It can't be exposed. Corey Ten Boone added a thought to verse 18. She said, God casts all our sins into the depths of the sea, and He posts a no-fishing sign just for good measure. I like that. Micah mentions in verse 19... The depths of the sea. Did you know the deepest part of the ocean is the Marianas Trench off the coast of Guam in the Pacific? 
There the ocean floor is over 30,000 feet below the surface of the water. That means you could stack 50 Peachtree plazas on top of each other and the top of the 50th one still lie just below the surface of the water. When we come to Christ, God buries all our sins at the bottom of the Marianas. Unlike the Phoenicians, who were the seafaring people, the ancient seafarers, the Hebrews were land lovers. Seldom did they ever venture out on the high seas. You know, we take vacations to the ocean, but not the ancient Jews. This is why we miss some of the tone of this verse. To the Jew, the sea was a dark, mysterious, eerie place. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the sea is often an idiom for sin and evil. The ocean is the last place a Jew would ever go. Thus, God puts all of our sin where it will never be retrieved. That's the tone of what he's saying. Once it goes into the ocean, it'll never be brought back. Once there was a Penn State player who made a huge mistake. Penn State lost a big game because it was penalized for having a 12th man on the field. This one little guy had run out there on the field at the wrong time. After the game, a reporter was pressing Coach Joe Paterno to name the guilty party who was responsible for the loss. Paterno replied, It's only a game. I have no intention of ever identifying the boy. He just made a mistake. Well, for us, life is more than a game. Eternity hangs in the balance. And our sin is more than a mistake. It's often deliberate and malicious. Yet if we're in Christ, God treats us the way that coach dealt with his illegal player. He refuses to bring it back up. He refuses to name the person. Here's what occurred last week when I sinned. Here's what occurred this morning when I sinned. The devil and all of hell's hecklers started calling for my blood. Hey God, did you see Sandy? You see how he sinned on that golf course today? When he shanked that shot? Do you see, do you see Sandy? The punishment for sin is death. Make him bleed, God. Kill him a little at a time. That's what the devil was saying. But you know what God answered? There's been enough bleeding. There's been enough dying. And then he turned to his right hand and he pointed to Jesus. And together they said, we've bled enough. This Sandy, he's a frail one. He keeps coming back over and over for more mercy. He has no chance without it. But I've chosen to forgive him. I put his sin behind us. He's mine forever. And I'll make him better. And God says that, friend, every time I sin. He says that every single time you sin. If your faith is in the defender, Jesus Christ. On the Jewish New Year, Orthodox Jews, they participate in a ritual known as tashlek. The term means you will cast. And it's taken from right here, Micah chapter 7, verse 19. A man, he goes down to the river or to the creek. Water flows downhill, downstream. So theoretically, eventually, all water ends up in the ocean. Actually ends up in the deepest part of the ocean. 
And so the man or the woman, they empty the trash from their pockets. And they quote Micah chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. And then they toss their trash into the creek. Then they stand there and they watch the current take their trash away. And it's a reminder. That's how God takes our sin away. God casts all our sin into the deepest parts of the sea. In your mind, perhaps you need to toss your sin tonight into the water and watch it roll away. Who is like our God, pardoning iniquity? Once there was a pastor, he had a woman in his church who was always seeing visions, dreaming dreams. She was always telling, what, telling people what God had said to her. Well, the pastor was a little bit skeptical. I mean, who is this woman? that She gets a hotline to God. She's always hearing from God. What is this? Well, this same pastor had committed a terrible sin earlier in his life that had haunted him throughout his years. One day, the pastor was talking to this lady. She was talking about all that God was doing with her and speaking to her and the vision she was seeing and all. And finally, he just says, wait a minute. If God really speaks to you, then I want you to ask Him to tell you the terrible sin that I committed when I was a young man. And I'll believe you're hearing from God if He tells you right. Well, Several weeks passed. He asked her again. He says, has God spoken to you? She said, oh, yes. Well, did He tell you what sin I committed? Or did you ask, did you ask Him about the sin I committed? She says, oh, yeah. Well, if He speaks to you, what was it? And the woman said, God told me he didn't remember. See, the Bible teaches us that God is omniscient. And technically, it's impossible for him to forget anything. But there are some things he chooses not to remember. And friend, that's your sin. He has chosen not to remember it. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, God says, One thing He doesn't remember is our sin. I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The book of Micah closes, verse 20. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. I guess you could say the book of Micah does have two themes, truth and mercy. And they both meet in Jesus Christ. His sacrifice satisfies God's truth. And it also imparts to us God's mercy.